it seems like we should read, this is kind of historical. I should get Love Child out. Okay. And just have it in case. That'd be great. There's a space. Yeah. But I'm in position. Can I move? You can oh, move. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Plus, I want to see its emergence. <laughs> oh, Suwani is now forever. Oh. In my oh, my gosh. <laughs> yeah, that's what I... Wow, right? It's like, it's big. It's a big girl poetry book. Oh my gosh, this is, this is not what I expected, actually. I mean, I, you know, I see, you you can see it on the computer screen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To see the thing itself is, oh. There's a word on the back I really love that is my word that I fought for with the publisher, which is, I didn't want to say Nikki Finney's new collection of photographs and letters and artifacts. So I love the word minglement. And so minglement is on the back. And they were like, minglement? What is that? And I was like, that's when things mingle together. And so without one thing, you wouldn't have the other thing. And so it's much more, I don't know, to me, evocative than collection, which is the sort of go-to word for something that's not just poetry. Right. Well, and that's, that's one of the problems I've had is, is trying to think about how do I, how do I talk about this book? Yeah. How do I think mm, about this book? Because mm. every time I've looked at it or, mm. or dipped back into it or, or read it through as I've, I've just been living inside this minglement yeah. <laughs> for the past couple of weeks. And I, it throws you, huh? It throws me every so time. And I, yes. I kept, I kept saying, <laughs> well, these are poems, mm-hmm. but it's also a memoir yeah. and it's a, a commonplace book yeah. and it's a, it's a museum gallery yeah. and it's a testament and it's, and it, and it always recommended a new way mm, to read it. And mm. I had no, I didn't have a container for it. Right. Except that it just is. I'm sitting in the Rawson listening room with Nikki Finney and the enormous pleasure I feel about that. And the gratitude I have to have this one with you is equal to the pleasure and gratitude I feel in holding Nikki, your new, collection your new book as you describe it a a minglement Mm. of poems which is love child's hotbed of occasional poetry poems and artifacts it's an unbelievably beautiful object and i'm so glad that we get a chance here to talk about what this is and what it means to you and and how it how this i can't even say collection because it's not a collection but you can say that that's fine it's just not the word on the back of the book but it is a collection so it's not it's not a word to avoid you know i just wanted something else to be on the back from the cumberland plateau in the university of the south this is the swanee review podcast Welcome to the Swanee Review Podcast. I'm Eric Smith, Managing Editor of the Review, and I'm here today in the Ralston Listening Room with Nikki Finney, author of five collections of poetry, including the National Book Award-winning Head Off and Split. Finney is also the editor of The Ringing Ear, Black Poets Lean South. Her latest collection, Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry, will be published by Northwestern University Press in April 2020. Nikki Finney, what a pleasure it is to have you here on the podcast and here at Suwannee. Thank you, Eric. It's really good to be here. 
I realized when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to ask you today that I have almost 10 years worth of questions that I wanted to ask you. And I also had the realization that I've been asking those questions of your poems for at least that long. And so I thought I would just put the question in your court and, and ask you, do you often find yourself in conversation with poets or with artists in their work before you have the chance to ask them the things you've been dying to ask them for however long you've been reading them? Absolutely. I started on the road to poetry because of questions that I had as a little girl and the adults weren't providing me with the answers to those questions. So I began to scribble, write the questions down in what looked to be innocent, empty books at the time, journal books, those little books covered in fabric that had keys. Later, I would find out that those books were called dream books, Mm. that women dreamed in them and put them near their pillow at night, a private world. Those worlds were the places where those questions went about growing up in the South, why there were so many things that happened on one side of the track that didn't happen on another side of the track. How could people be so mean to each other and yet end up in church at the same time, at the same day, in different buildings? So the answers that came back to me are sort of the typical answers that adults give children to keep them safe so that they won't ask too many questions, so that they won't be hurt, those kinds of things. But my little quirky mind and my heart, because it's a conversation that happens with the head and the heart, I had to go find the answers to myself. So a lot of the questions that I had for poets of the poetry I was reading, I still haven't gotten to ask those poets, and I may never, but they are wedged and settled and tucked into those books that sit on my shelves in my house that number from one to 179 now. I've kept them since I was about 14. So I can look back at my life and I can see what I was doing when I was 12 and 13, see what I was thinking about, what kind of questions were heavy on my heart and head and things I would try to find the answer to. Do you feel like you're any closer? I mean, you're five books in, you've you've devoted your life to, to art. Do you feel like you're closer to finding an answer to some of those questions? I don't know if I am looking to find the answer as a finite thing. I think that what I am looking for is to be on the path. I'm looking for the journey. And sometimes the answer changes. Sometimes you think you have discovered what you've been looking for. And lo and behold, there is something else hurtling towards you from out of the universe. And I think the most important thing is to be open to that so that there might be a line of answers for that one question. Because it's kind of like I was telling my students the other day how important it is to 
reread things. Mm-hmm. Something that I read when I was 30, if I read it at 40, it's very different. If I read it at 50, it's very different because I'm different. And if I haven't changed, then that's part of the problem. But all of those answers and all of those, all the things I've found add up to that answer I'm looking for. And so on some level, I hope never to find right. <laughs> the finite thing, right? Because I like the swirl. I like it being in my head and in my heart and on the path when I'm walking in the morning to sort of still wrestle with. It's not like I like to be in perpetual in a perpetual state of wrestling with something, but I love my interior space, which is what the new book is about. It really has a lot to do with the fact that when I was a girl, my father nurtured my interior space while my mother nurtured the rest of me. But he knew that there was something there to sort of pay attention to. And I'm deeply grateful for that because I still have it. Unlike a ballerina, perhaps, whose knees give out when they're <laughs> 25 or 30, I feel like my interior space keeps growing. And that's the space that I use to write from and to ask myself questions and to journey towards those answers. That's so illuminating because that's been so much of my experience reading Love Child Mm. is that I feel like as I'm reading it, you're creating a space for me as a reader in the book to see what this is. But it's also, I'm thinking about the other word you used, which was path, is that it's, it's showing me back through my history of reading your work. And it's helping me see those poems that I loved at a different point in my life in a new light. I'm thinking specifically about, I had this uncanny, strange moment when I was reading Love Child and I read the poem Florissant. Mm, Yes. And I don't have the words to describe this sort of shattering revelation of that poem and the tenderness Mm. of that poem. Mm. And so I found myself unable to figure out what was happening, except eventually my head sort of settled on the place it went to was another of your poems, Mm. The Afterbirth, Mm. 1931. Mm. And I had this, and I didn't know why. It just, the poem that I was reading suggested to me this other poem. And then, of course, I immediately, I just stepped back over to the shelf and picked up rice. And then I have this moment of reapproaching this poem. Mm. And then I have these, these two poems that I read at some distance from each other occupying this space together again and teaching me how to read them. Wow, that's amazing that you, I have never thought about the unseen molecular structure between those two poems, but I'm sitting here listening to you thinking, of course, I remember trying to figure out if I could write about the pain that my family must have felt in the afterbirth, 1931, which is a poem about the birth of my father and the death of my grandmother, whom I never met. And I also see clearly, I remember when I heard the story that is in Florissant, I sat down immediately to try and scribble my way to say something for her mother and for her father, who must have felt an incredible grief after the death of their daughter. 
And so the same emotional landscape is present in both. But I never thought about that before you said that. You describe your, what you do is that you had to scribble. Now in, in your adult life as Nikki Finney, you know, the established poet, but you also use that word to describe your process early on as a girl with questions. So yes. I, I just, I'm kind of curious about how you, how you see yourself as a scribbler and how you, what's your relationship to that? I that write word? constantly. I have a pen bag, a pencil bag on the plane with me coming here. I have one by my bed. I have several in my car rolling under the seat when I, I can hear them when, the, <laughs> when I'm breaking for something. <laughs> I'm never far from a pencil or a pen. And that has been my history as a writer. I find great comfort knowing that. Sometimes like on Saturday, I say, I should, I should go around and, and sharpen all my pencils because you just never know when I'll need one. Right, right. So I'll, I'll go to the 10 cups around my house and gather them up and I'll go to my pencil sharpener and I'll just sharpen them. And I'll think about what they might possibly arc towards in the future. I have no idea. But I am a scribbler. One of the wonders about writing for me, you know, four decades in, is I don't know what I'm going to find. I love the surprise of that. Right. I know that I'm a sensitive child. I know that I'm the sensitive child of my mother and my father. That is stamped in me, done. But I don't know how that sensitive child is going to react to the world around her because I'm a poet of my time. One of my jobs, one of my responsibilities is to make what we are looking at either the death of my grandmother or the death that happens in Florissant as something we must not look away from right? because it's a part of us all being here, not one community, but the human community. And so I can't get there without scribbling because I don't know where I, I know what I've, what I'm feeling, but I don't know where it's going. Right. And so there's a, when I scribble, there's a map, there's a legend. I can follow it back to the word or the person or the story that caught my eye that didn't let me go. And I don't think this is any kind of especially special thing. I think that for me, I just can't let it go, which is, I think, what happens to a lot of artists, and a lot of poets. We turn to it instead of going to watch the football game or, you know, going out to be social. We want to, we want to wrestle with it to see what the question is. So the book is called Love Child's Hotbed of Occasional Poetry, Poems, and Artifacts. Isn't that a crazy title? Who thought of that? My version of that question (laughs) is, when did what this book is start telling you that's what it was? When I knew my father was dying, which is 2017. I had the poems because I've been writing the poems for the last several years. Mm -hmm. I knew that this was an amalgamation. I knew that this was a coming together of different kinds of things. I knew I didn't just want to put together a book of occasional poetry, which is what it was looking like. Not that that wouldn't have been, I think, a good collection, but I felt in that moment the pull of other kinds of things as well. One of them was had to be my journal books where I kept so much information and I felt, you know what? I'm going to die. These books are going to be like gobbled up by somebody and then they're going to be misinterpreted. If I can pluck out some of the hotbeds 
didn't have the word there at the time. They were just journal entries. I said, well, that's boring. Nobody's going to read that. <laughs> Let's get a, a different kind of name for them. And I thought of myself as a gardener, a person who loves to put her hands in the soil. And I thought, oh, a hotbed. I was like, well, that's kind of crazy because then they're going to think it's erotic poetry. <laughs> and it's not that. But I said, then they'll read it and they'll understand what my lifelong quest has been, which is not to go by the definition that CNN or the most popular things give us, but really the etymology of words and language. And maybe they'll figure out that, oh, hotbed is something else too. And so I knew it was risky, but I also thought it would help. It would lend something to that book because I'm a title girl. I love titles. People pay me for titles. I mean, that <laughs> you know, I think of them and then they fly away and then they don't belong to me anymore. But I love titles. And so I had the occasional poems. I knew that there was more there. My father was getting weaker. My father was diagnosed with Alzheimer's in 2013. And I left Kentucky, the University of Kentucky, and moved back to South Carolina to take care of him. My father is my hero. My father was the person who taught me to be still in the world and was a very calm, loving, gentle, generous man. And I thought to myself, if there's any way I can go home and take care of him in the last years of his life as an adult, I want to do that. And so I went home. So there I am taking care of him, taking care of my mom, being one of his caregivers. I have, I'm working on these occasional poems at night and I find all of these love notes from him that he scribbled on post-it notes and on Supreme Court stationery, and he's the representative from South Carolina stationery, president of South Carolina State stationery. And I thought, wow, I knew these, I kept everything he ever sent me, no matter where I was in the world. And I thought, is it crazy that I could, that the love that I am pouring into these poems that I could show where that love started, how it came to be from these two people who were living in, a, in the South at a time of great violence and great heartache and great strife, and how they were in the same moment undeterred about teaching me the power of loving others and the power of loving myself. So I started gathering his notes in a pile, not knowing what I was going to do with them. I love the visual. There's so much about the visual world that also speaks to me as a scribbler. One of the ways that I think I succeed as a poet is if somebody says to me, you were reading a poem and I could see exactly what you were talking about. Right. I was like, okay, I'm good. You may not agree with me, but you could see it. So the visual has always been one of the things in my toolbox that I really lean into as a poet because I want the person listening to see what I'm talking about. So I also start in another pile some photographs that really struck me that I had all over my house my entire life that I thought, could I use these? So I put those in a pile. And then I started moving things around as if they were a new constellation of interpreting a story. So two years of doing that, 
I finally found the arrangement that I thought told the, the reader or w- might tell the reader the power of love, the power of a father and daughter's story, the power of being a working poet in the world, and the power of even though I'm speaking of really difficult things, I'm not forgetting the f- love factor. And so my father's name for me, private name, in all those letters was Love Child. And I remember when he told me why he named me that when I was a little girl, because he didn't want somebody else naming me something, and he didn't want me to forget what I had come from. And so I started arranging the title, and I thought, can I call this, can I put Love Child in this? Is that okay? And by when that happened, Daddy passed on December 3rd, 2017, and that was a huge, the moments after that, his death really taught me that I had to do this and I had to make his impression on me prominent in the book. And so I started rearranging words. It was, I wish you could see the journal where I'm trying to figure out what the name of the book is because I'm almost ready to send it to Northwestern. And finally, everything sort of clicked you know, the Rubik cube uh-huh. kind of thing. Yeah. And I said, oh, love child's, I had it one word at first. And then I looked at his handwriting and he w- would always say love child. And I didn't want it to be interpreted like flower child uh-huh. or something <laughs> like that. And I was like, no, yeah. I have to honor how he did it. And so it was really try and failure, trial and failure and working it out until, and I always read my work out loud, be it titles or, or the work itself. And it just sounded finally sounded right. It was a little long, but I'm long-winded, so it's okay. And talking about not just the relationship with your father, but that specific relationship through language yeah. is so interesting to me because the something that kept happening over and over as I'm reading the book is, I feel like I get to know you better. Mm. I feel like I've, I get to know him better in the book. And what part of what you're talking about here is that I think in a lot of ways we we see death as a, a sort of silencing, mm-hmm. right? There's a, mm. the voice leaves the world. Yes. And yet in this minglement, right. we have all of these voices. Yes. We have all, and one of the things that I'm thinking about now is that when your father signs those letters, <laughs> he signs all of his names. And so there's a, there's a way in which there's this multivocal mm. naming and renaming and over describing and right. long windedness that it's it's so um, abundant. Yes. If we're thinking about a hotbed, there's just right. so much growth in this, and right. that's the every time I I read the book, it kept exceeding its 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 bed. bed. You yeah, know, all of its right, all of the whatever limitations I thought were or could be on a poem or on a collection of artifacts, it just kept renaming itself. My father uses the word boss in like 1972. He says to the South Carolina House of Representatives, I hope you go home and have a boss weekend. And then in that letter I'm writing to my mom when I'm 11, I tell her that the watch I want to buy is so boss. (laughs) So there are these instances where language connects at different points and language changes, and we don't say boss so much anymore, or where the, the word boss comes from. The reporter actually asks him, what do you, he's white, 
And he says, what are you talking about? And he goes, oh, I want everybody to have a boss weekend just like the boss is going to have. And I was like, I never heard that. I didn't know that was the connection, you know, but my father, this is what my father has put in the record. And so I bring that into the book too. And the occasion of that is him introducing the session. Right. He's the first, first. first black to preside over the House of Representatives in South Carolina. And one of the things that's, that also, I love the boss yeah. of him contextualizing <laughs> right. that, but it's also that he says, I don't know if it's, if he says it or if someone else says it, but let's hope this is the first of many. Yes. That's somebody else says that. And there's this, and I think this is speaking to what you're talking about, a way, about the way language itself changes and, mm-hmm. and receives new context, but also that once that language changes, mm-hmm. it, it reshapes the world around it. Right. And so him occasioning that presiding mm-hmm. by being the first black man in right. that space to right. do that and then to enter into the record both himself as history, language as history. From and his community. From his community and to say, let this persist. And this is why we need that variable. We need different voices presiding so that my language from my community becomes a minglement. Mm. Yeah, of course. To right. The, right? Right. To the, your language. Because if, we, if it doesn't happen, if we don't have those bridges, those ways that we arc toward each other, then we don't arc toward each other. We arc away from each other. And we think we share nothing. And that is, that is like the cruelest dilemma of all. Because we share everything. You know, one of the things that I was told early on as a poet is two things. One, don't write about yourself. Two, you'll never amount to anything. This guy stood up in my first poetry reading in Florida and he said, you know, nobody's ever going to know your name. You never write a second book because you're not afraid to write about the political. And I was like, but everything is political. Clean air is political. Clean water you know, so it really hit me early on that I was either going to write the book I wanted to write, not because somebody gave me permission or told me this was what you're supposed to do, but it was what I couldn't turn away from. And I don't know what the reaction of the world will be to it. I do know this is the book that I wanted to put out into the world. You know, the whole notion that I could write a book based on love in 2020 when we're throwing spears and arrows at each other. I'm not bothered by that. It's really what makes us human still. And I want to think about that as long as I'm here. Our podcast is recorded in the William Ralston Listening Room located inside DuPont Library at the University of the South in Sewanee, Tennessee. This room is equipped with state-of-the-art audio components and over 30,000 recordings. Classes, listening sessions, and opera screenings are hosted by student curators throughout the school year. To visit or find out more about the Ralston Room, visit their website at library.sewanee.edu backslash Ralston. So the hotbeds 
as they appear in the book, are separate numbered prose sections that are threaded all the way through the collection. Yes. And if I remember right, the last hotbed of those prose pieces in the book is the very first one that you wrote 30 years ago? 30 years ago. Hotbed number 15. I'm at a reading, one of my first readings. I've arrived in Baltimore. I have my books. I think it's rice in my trunk of my car. I'm selling it at a table with a cash box because <laughs> that's what I that's how I right. thought this is how you get your work out in the world. Right. And so I'm reading from it and I'm talking to the audience and I'm love I love the exchange with an audience. Even the guy in Florida. I love to know what somebody has heard. Mm. It's hard enough to do the work at a table by yourself. But what you really want to do is, I think, connect with whoever's listening. So in that moment, I finished and I was about to go to the table and see if I was going to sell any books. And this woman appears and she was so regal and so something. There was an aura about her that reminded me of the women in my family. I remember standing up when she walked, as she got closer. I was like, why are you standing up? You don't even know who this is. (laughs) And she said... You have nothing to do with how beautiful you are. That belongs to your mother and your father. I was like, okay. And she said, but your beautiful mind, you have something to say about that. I just wanted you to know. Keep at it. And she twirled away. And I was struck. I was stamped. I felt like galloping horses had run through my chest. Because how did she know I worked on that? How did she know bringing out the beautiful in something I was even working on then and stamping that in my work was so important to me. For the rest of my life, I looked for her. I was too struck to thank her and she disappeared and I never got to. But the fact that she heard as a stranger what I was trying to do in just my second book mattered to me. So I I thought of her Thousands of times after that, when I was working on something and it was getting tough and I couldn't get to what I wanted to get to, and it often made me just keep at it. And so I put her at the end, even though she was the beginning of my understanding that the hotbed moment, because I I went back to the hotel that night and I wrote about her and I kept it in my journal and I flipped back to it every time I would get Like, what am I doing? This poetry stuff. I don't know if this is going to take off. But I really found great inspiration in her hearing what I was saying that night. And I just always wanted to thank her. So I wanted to put, I wanted to say that in this book, that she didn't have to wait after and come up to me. She didn't have to say what she she did. But it was, um, it was a turn in the road in a very powerful way. Would you read that piece? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Hotbed 15. She walks up to me, every step intentional. Her clothes are dark and tailored. I am sitting on the high stool that waited behind me during the reading. I should get up and follow the crowd to the book signing table, but this is my favorite part. The lingering 
the talking with the people who could have been anywhere else tonight, but who instead came to spend a little time with me, to ask me something they heard in my ocean of orange-blooded octopus words. I stand up as she arrives because there is something matter-of-fact about her. It is something that reminds me of the women in my family. I have never seen her before in my life, but still I stand up when she arrives. Her mouth opens, closes, opens again. She leans deeply into my airspace. She is not afraid of being close. You have nothing to do with how beautiful you look. Your mama and daddy did that. But you have everything to do with your beautiful mind. I try to respond, but I am embarrassed, caught off guard. She doesn't wait for me to find my way back to my words or to any new words about what she has now laid at my feet. She stops, half turns back around, not to say anything else, but to make sure I have inhaled every fragrant thing she has now shawled about my shoulders. She stares at me. She knows I heard what she said. For the next 30 years, after every reading I am ever invited to give, I will linger and wait for her, and she will never appear again. I wonder what her name is. I wonder where she is. What would you say to her now? I'd just hug her. I couldn't say a word. I'd give her a copy of the book, maybe. I would let her know how impactful she was. And maybe the reason to write that also and to talk about her is because sometimes we let the world talk us out of doing something we know we should do. Like I know there are people who want to go up to a young poet after they have read or to an old poet, to anybody, and make this human exchange But the world has told them, they don't need you to do that. The world has told them, aren't you late for something? The world has told them, she doesn't need that from you. It's so untrue. We do need those things. We do need the person to wait in the line. We do need the person to give what they can give. So if somebody reads that and... It makes them linger. It makes them hang out for a second and give that person a part of what they felt having been there. That's why I do what I do. It's so easy to dismiss those moments. Yeah. Right? It's to say, it's like you said, it's it's easy to talk yourself out of making the approach. Right. But it, it, it makes me think again about another part of the title in the book, which is the occasion of that. Yes. This seemingly fleeting moment right that is full of possibility but so easy to let yourself talk yourself out talk of yourself it. out of it and there's another moment in that moment of hotbed 15 where somebody has come to tell me something right there's another moment and i'm making this connection because you put it in the way that you did when i stood in line to meet tony morrison for the first time it was 300 people waiting with me. We didn't move because we wanted the moment of meeting her. This is back in the 1980s when Song of Solomon came out. And I was a young writer, first book out, 1986. And I thought, 
I have lost my mind. I'm waiting in this line to meet the great Toni Morrison. I have a book in my hand. I've written, you know, inscribed it to her. I was like, what is she? She doesn't, all these people, you know, what are you doing? But there was something in my ear and it said, stay, do it. And it was probably her, right? Mm, in some way. In some mean, way. In some, yeah, great spirit way. Yeah. And I did. And there's another moment in this book where an exchange is made between us. And an exchange is made in 1986. And then there was a moment 30 years later in more than 30 years when when I saw her for the last time uh, when she had just given a reading from love and that's a seed a seed I feel like a seed was dropped in 1986 that grew into that moment but you have to grow into that moment by doing the work you have to grow into that moment by staying the course and doing what you say you want to do. It doesn't just happen to be there. It stays there because you grow into the rest of your life as a writer. And I would never have been able to experience both those things had I not stood in line as a 26-year-old writer, right? And then stood in line, you know, as a writer in my 50s. This book is filled with so many points of light if if you read too fast, you'll miss them. Like there's a photograph of my grandmother with a safety pin on her picture, blouse. Yeah. yeah. And she always, she would get dressed in the morning. She would go through, you know, brush her teeth and put her lotion on. And then when she would get dressed, she'd put a safety pin. And I was like, what is that? And some point during the day, she would use that safety pin for something, either for herself or for one of us. And my brothers have no memory of this. They don't remember her doing that. But I was like, why did I remember that safety pin? Again, thinking about earlier when you were talking about Toni Morrison, that question mm. that she asks mm-hmm. you. I wonder what you would say to someone embarking on that, on that work. What would you say to them if they were to ask you that question? How am I, how am I supposed to do this? Well, I, I would not start out by saying it's monumental. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know, because I don't think about it being monumental. I think about it being what I came to earth to do. I often meet young writers who are trying to divide their life up into, well, I could write or I could go to law school or I could be a nurse. And I say to them, you should go be a nurse. You should maybe go to law school. I didn't have that option. I wanted to be a writer. I didn't have a second, you know, like you, you take those tests in high school and they tell you what you're really good at right. or what you could, you know, possibly be good at. Writing, words, storytelling. So all my eggs were in one basket and they tell you don't do that, right? Right. Diversify your <laughs> Diversify portfolio. Diversify your portfolio. Yeah. And the thing about it is I love so many things. Stardust, the sky, the way chickens walk, the color of the butterflies, you know, monarchs, where are they? Are they coming back? I mean, they have so many interests. French, the way the Crayola crayon names from the 19th century and the, how different they are from just quirky, really strange things. Writing is the only 
thing that can hold all that for me. I didn't want to go off and specialize in one thing. I was like, how can I bring all of this under my one life? Writing. I write about the sky. I write about history. I write about language. I write about science. I write about butterflies. I write about elephants. I write about the whales that used to talk to each other and now they can't hear each other. I'm so lucky. Every day I wake up, I go, I cannot believe. I pinch myself. You're a poet? You get to be a poet? You get to go to Sewanee and talk to other young poets or be on record as a poet of her time? I'm so lucky. It's, I can only say to young writers, this is something you really should want to do. You should want to do this and you should want to do it for a long time because it changes. It's not what it starts out to be. If you want to do this because you want to be famous, wrong, wrong answer. You should want to explore. You should want to figure something out. You should want to leave something behind that has your signature on it. Either the signature of your voice or the signature of your signature. And that's what I wanted to do. And that's what I still want to do as long as I can. Is there something from Love Child that you just like to share with us that you'd like to read? I'm a crazy observer of people. I see things and I run to scribble them down because I don't know what I'm going to do with them. It's kind of like keeping a book of epigraphs by the bed. And I'm like, what are you going to do with these great sayings? I don't know, but I'll use them one day, maybe. So I'm driving at home and I see somebody on the bridge and it becomes a hotbed. And I think he's kind of Superman, but it's for you to decide. Hotbed 49. It's hunting season and I'm driving Highway 26 across the Congaree River. One exit remains before my exit home. A man is coming toward me riding against the traffic. He is a man who should not be riding his bicycle in the emergency lane of this dangerous highway. But he is. He rides fast as if he is being chased. But no one is behind him. He rides fast as if he knows he only has a small window of time. He's holding on to the wobbling bike handles with only his right hand. The front legs of a ten-point buck are curled around his right shoulder. The buck's ten-point antlers, his half-closed eyes, open gaping mouth, and dangling tongue are held near the bicyclist's dark brown left cheek. His left arm is locked in place. I slow down as he passes by to be sure I am seeing what I'm really seeing. A black man on a bright orange bike on a four-laner with a dead deer splayed across his shoulders like a mink. There is blood dripping down his white shirt, but his smile is as wide as the Congaree River. His fast-pedaling legs tell me this winter will be different. This winter, in his shotgun of a house, there will be meat. Takes a quirky mind to write that. Because it's just somebody... A crazy person on the highway, on the bridge. 
I saw so much more. He was smiling. He was so happy. He was trying to get home. This buck was twice his size. It was just, it was amazing. It was amazing. And you know what I wanted to do? I wanted to turn my car around and escort him home because my immediate fear was, oh God, the police are going to stop him. He's breaking some law. Right. But I saw him doing something to feed his family and himself. And so I was operating out of humanity to humanity, which is why I want to read this and why I want people to think about, they always think, oh, what is this? Take him to jail. Throw the key away. He's breaking the law. The artist says another thing. The artist brings another perspective. And I didn't, I care more about that than the poem itself. Who will hear it, which is why the exchange at the reading level is so important. What will, what seeds will I push out into the world? Somebody drives home having heard me read that. Because we all, this isn't, I'm not special. We all have the capacity to see people beyond the rule of law or what the world, how the world tells us to see them, be it skin color or hair or degrees from fine institutions. We have the capacity to stop that definition and take in something else. But we need reminders of that. We don't get enough reminders. I don't think we do. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. It has been such a joy to talk to you about your life and art and your life and art and to share these couple of days with you at Suwannee and to share this book with you and, and everybody else who's going to read it and have these same encounters with, I think, what is at its heart an encounter with love. Mm-hmm. And I'm so grateful. I just want to thank Suwannee for doing the work of writing and literature and keeping the magazine going for so beautifully long. And that takes a village. It doesn't just take a couple of people, but it takes the investment of believing that you're making an impact in the world and inviting all these amazing young people to take up the charge and be here with you and then move out into the world to their other stations to take that with them. So I want to thank you for that. Thank you for listening to the Suwannee Review Podcast. If you like what you heard, the best way to support the Suwannee Review, America's oldest continuously published literary quarterly, is by purchasing a print and online subscription at thesuwanneereview.com. To discover what's happening at the Review, visit our website or follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at the Suwannee Review. Until next time, This is the Suwannee Review, new since 1892.